Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and no Amanda. Amanda's all busy taking care of important things today. So I am here with the authors of a new book, Alexis and Justin Black. They have a book coming out called Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness, and Love. We got it right here. <laughs> and if you're on the live stream, you can see the picture of it. We're going to live stream a couple of our uh, episodes to uh, Facebook from for the, the current future and see how that works out so that if you guys are part of the group, you can see the, the podcast come up as a video live stream ahead of time. It'll still come out on your podcast players here in a couple of weeks, but we want to give everybody in the group an opportunity to come see this. And you also have an opportunity to get to see and kind of meet some of the guests a little bit. So Alexis and Justin, how are you guys doing today? We're doing great. We're doing great. Um, book launch is coming up soon, and we're just really excited. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today is the, we're recording this on the 8th of November, and tomorrow the 9th is your book launch, right? Yes. All right. <laughs> well, you guys sent me an advanced reader copy, and I got about halfway through it, and I have not gotten a chance to finish it yet. And I'm not going to lie, I haven't read a lot of books lately, and this is one that had me pretty much tied into it. You guys talk about a lot of important things in this book. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as it kind of jumps back and forth through your stories growing up, I mean, my goodness, I was, I, I've met a lot of kids. We've seen a lot of trauma. We've seen a lot of problems that kids go through. And so what we're, what I'm doing over here is reading this going, I hear common themes of things that a lot of people have dealt with. You guys yeah. went through some pretty traumatic pasts. Mm-hmm. And that's what we really wanted to showcase is that our story isn't abnormal. This is what's out here and so many young people are dealing with. Um, And I've met so many young people that have gone through it, but then also a lot of adults that I'm very open about my experiences and what they've gone through and and how so many adults I know that are still healing from their childhood. Um, And so we really wanted to show the importance of that healing and working through that in order to be who we are today, because I'm not going to spend my entire life working through that and and hindered by by those experiences. I want to grow and succeed. So, you know, I'm 43 years old. Yeah, 43. (laughs) I lose track eventually. Uh, I'm 43 years old, and I've, I've spent a lot of time working with a lot of people, running into people in culture and in time, you know, everywhere you go. And I meet a lot of folks older than me, 10, 20 years older than me sometimes, who have not worked through that trauma from their childhood. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You guys are really wise. How, how old are you guys now? 26. And I'm 23. Okay. Uh, 23, man. He's a baby. I'm going to tell <laughs> you. Met, I was a uh, junior in college and he was an incoming freshman. Yeah. <laughs> You're making me feel old. Our oldest daughter would have been 24 this year. Oh. My oldest son is 22. So. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's amazing to see a young couple like you guys who, who are already working through this trauma because that's 
that's a thing that most people don't understand is a level of trauma that so many kids go through. And a lot of kids don't go through it in foster care because, you know, like my wife is a great story. She had a traumatic childhood, but she was never in foster care. Nobody ever gave her any of those services, reached out to her, helped her through that stuff. She had to do it on her own. Mm -hmm. And I talk about that all the time, that the number of foster youth that are in foster care is over 400,000. But think about the kids who should have been in foster care and never were. And that means that nobody advocated on their behalf and nobody stood up for them. Nobody tried to help them. And so that's, there's so many services and things out there for foster youth that aren't utilized. But then what about the kids that should have been in, in foster care and the resources that they're not getting? Um, and so they're even further behind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I don't want you guys to give away your whole book here necessarily, but, <laughs> but you know, maybe could, can you talk about your childhoods and where you came from? Because I think it's important to know where we came from to appreciate who we've become. Yeah. So, um, I grew up in Detroit. I'm from Detroit and been there since pretty much the age of like 17 or 18. And, um, I entered the foster care system at nine years old uh, because my parents deal with substance abuse issues and my dad was um, dealing with some of the same things and selling drugs and doing drugs. And uh, from there at nine years old, um, we for a while were on a run from child protective services, uh, going back to our old neighborhood, living in abandoned housing. And then uh, it got to a point where we were just living in such extreme situations with no heat, no water, that we transitioned into the foster care system. And luckily I was able to live with family members for a while with my oldest brother, and then living with my auntie for a while for six years before leaving there. And then um, being kicked out of there, we just started going home from home. Uh, eight months with a, a, my brother's best friend and then into a group home right outside of the city of Detroit. So uh, from there, just kind of feeling like uh, you don't belong in a certain place because you know you bounce around a lot and a lot of I feel like a lot of adults and people will give up on you easily so you start to create this sense of independence and um, resentment towards a lot of people so uh, going into college I uh, needed a sense of belonging so to speak and looking in the wrong direction for belonging but um, luckily I had a decent amount of uh, godly values and Christian values uh, uh, laid upon me in my heart to where I started to break away from it, but I eventually came back to it and meeting Alexis my freshman year, she was a junior. Uh, uh, meeting her then, it, it helped me kind of understand the situations that I've gone through and kind of cope with what I've been through and kind of process it in a way that it, it's not normal what I've been through, but uh, have an understanding that what I'm going through is something that can uh, stop with my generation of, of uh, people and you set the example for my children and my nephews and nieces or my children I have eventually that um, the lifestyle that we've lived and our parents live is not normal and it's not acceptable and it can't change with me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and I'm Alexis. And uh, I would say I was, I'll start um, with my biological mom, um, where at six years old, she actually committed suicide. And after that, I went to live with my dad full time. Before that, um, I was only with him, I think on weekends, um, but they were going through a really ugly 
custody battle um, after he first um, decided that he didn't want me. And then he, I guess he decided that he did. Um, and then uh, I guess it was right at the end of that battle that um, my dad won. And then she um, committed suicide soon after that. And uh, I went to live with him full time. Um, and that's when the abuse began. Uh, it was um, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse uh, for about eight years until I was about 13. Uh, and then I <clears throat> I was forced to, to kind of tell on him of what happened. Um, and then after that, I uh, went and lived with my aunt and uncle where um, it was also an unhealthy situation where my aunt was very much emotionally and mentally abusive. And so I couldn't really heal from past experiences. Um, and then to kind of compound onto that of <laughs> what was going on, <clears throat> I was in an abusive relationship throughout that time um, because for so many years, I believed that love hurt and I believe that uh, I believe a lot of the words that my abusers have told me about myself my worth my value uh, different things like that and um, having low self-esteem and and just not understanding my worth as a human as a woman um, and as a partner and so kind of just navigating life through that from uh, 13 to 21 being with that individual or 13 to 22 being with that individual um, and then um, eventually my aunt picked me out of their house. Uh, she picked up all my stuff and put it in the driveway uh, my junior year of high school. And uh, that was actually the greatest thing that's ever happened to me because uh, I met my foster parents who are now my adoptive parents. And they're just the greatest humans on the planet. Uh, and we're actually living with them right now, even though we just got married um, because of the pandemic, which is always fun. But, uh, and I have, you know, at home with five siblings, it's, a, it's an adjustment for everybody uh, being newly married and, and things like that. But um, so, yes, and then I, I met them my junior year of high school um, and got adopted in December from them. So, yeah, that's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a lot of story. And I'm just going to say that, that I think y'all glossed over a lot of details that you went to in the book there that really, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't, we can't get you like the whole book. Yeah. Well, you got to read it. Yeah. yeah. But then also remember that, um, most memoirs are this late for one person. Right. And we wrote a memoir together for two people. So we had to leave out, leave out a lot of things that have happened to us. Um, but we just gave you the general gist of like, this is what we've gone through. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's my point is, is I've been through a lot, a lot of the book already. And I'm just going to tell you that there's way more in there and it's definitely worth reading. Definitely worth reading. Thank you. You know, Justin, you know, you were talking through, you know, things like, you know, you just said it like it's just part of life, right? Because it was part of your life, <laughs> but living in abandoned housing. And people, I don't think, understand the, the commonality of that. Uh, I, I work in, in St. Louis City. I'm, I'm in different parts of the city. And sometimes I'm in the parts of the city where there's a lot of that going on. The mm. houses that, that you look at and you think, man, why don't they tear these houses down? These things are all, you know, it's all abandoned. And just, you know, this part of the city is kind of rotting away. But, man, when you're there at the right time, there's a, a bit of a community in there. Yeah. And for, I don't know about Detroit. I've heard stories, as I'm sure you've heard stories about St. Louis. They both have a little bit of a reputation. But mm -hmm. most of those communities where people are, are living in abandoned houses and stuff like that, man, they're tough neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Is that what you grew up in? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, um, we were homeless growing up pretty often, like growing up in, or living in shelters and uh, moving home to home like pretty frequently being kicked out because rent was rent was late and 
uh, so many other things. I talk about the home we live in on Dexter Avenue um, for a while, and that was kind of where we lived for the longest, I feel like. And we, we have like a home base as far as Southwest Detroit, where a lot of our family members on my dad's side grew up and as more familiar with, and that's kind of what we call our neighborhood. But um, we were on Dexter and then moving from there is where we kind of were on a run from Child Protective Services. And then um, again, that neighborhood was pretty rough as well. And um, a lot going on in that neighborhood, a lot of uh, drama, a lot of things just it's happening all at once, neighborhood full of drug dealers and, and just a lot of things happening at once. And going from that to our old neighborhood, uh, we're on a run from some child protective services. And again, we were, we go to living in the abandoned house and our old neighborhood uh, had multiple abandoned houses and our grand, our grandparents old house was abandoned. We had a family member, I think an uncle living in there. Um, a few houses down from where we stayed, there was an abandoned house, the people lived in there. And, um, we, luckily we had a, a next door neighbor who had lights and everything going on in their house and we kind of used an extension for us, plugging plug in TVs and video games and stuff like that. But one thing I will say is that the idea of normal and redefining that, like that, those living situations were normal for me. Um, growing up in somewhat poverty and it, the things that made me happy were, you know, as a child, as a nine or 10 year old, were like the video games and you know, if my dad was able to buy us McDonald's or KFC or something like that, those were the things that made us happy. And if I shoveled snow or did like, you know, cut somebody's grass for money, you know, that, those are the things that kind of brought me satisfaction and happiness and some sense of hope and faith that my parents would kind of um, restore our lives and make things better would also sustain me. But the idea of poverty and that normal was kind of acceptable within the neighborhood, within our lives, and we kind of just adjusted because it was it was okay and it was acceptable. Now, in the book, you you learn that it did get to an extreme where a lot of us were getting sick and you know taking bucket showers, and when the winter came along, uh, things got brutal. Um, you start to notice certain things. You know, when you get a stomach virus and it gets passed along the house and everyone's extremely sick living in this abandoned house during the winter time. You kind of notice how bad things are getting. And uh, that's when you start to notice as a child, like this is not normal and it started to flip. But as far as poverty, and as far as abandoned housing, drug use, um, drug dealing, those are like normal ideas and acceptable ideas as a child. And and that's why redefining normal with a title is so important because we had I had to kind of go through a process of changing that that normal and those ideas and that culture for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I was wondering that exact question mm-hmm. when you mentioned not having electric and and utilities and whatnot. You know, because I'm thinking in St. Louis, it gets cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. Michigan is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it was. Uh, it, we we moved into that abandoned house. I think around October ish. I think November, like a little bit before December. I don't know the exact date, but a little bit before December. And it wasn't as bad in the fall. And I mentioned this in the book. It wasn't as bad in the fall. That's why I think things are okay and acceptable. But once January and February came around, 
and you really start to see the extreme situations and it just really starts to impact you where you know it's like okay i don't know how we can survive in this house with no heat and everything and taking you know i honestly be transparent i wasn't cleaning myself i wasn't taking showers we didn't have a shower you know some people would scoop up the snow off the ground and wait for it to melt in front of a heater and clean themselves but i just wasn't cleaning i was like a nine or ten year old i'm like it's whatever i'm just not cleaning myself i didn't think about it i don't think too many nine or ten year olds probably think about that too much but uh i just wasn't doing it and i just didn't think about it and it got to a point where you know you, i don't think i described this in the book but how we used the bathroom and how we went about that and you know when it was my turn to i knew that i also knew how bad it was when it was my turn to kind of clean out the bucket that we used the bathroom in mm. uh, i had to carry that outside and like dump it in the alley and when it was full and i don't describe this in the book but i kind of spilled it one time and got on my shoes and I'm like, yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine you would. <laughs> you know, I've met a few nine or 10 year old boys and they don't tend to be real big into taking care of themselves. But yeah, I, no, no child, I don't think, really cares about that yeah. until, until their parent like forces them to. I know looking at my siblings, I'm like, come on now. Like, you know, it's time for a shower. <laughs> well, Alexis, I'll let you in on a little thing about boys is they start to pay attention to that stuff when they start to pay attention to girls and they realize oh, yeah. girls pay attention to that. Yep. <laughs> I started noticing that too. <laughs> I have a 15-year-old son right now and I'll tell you right now, here of late, we're in a place where like he takes a shower without being told to. You know, mm -hmm. he takes care of his hair. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, who's looking? Who's watching? <laughs> yeah, that, there's a young lady. I, I I don't remember her name right now, and I'd probably get in trouble for mentioning it. So I'll leave that alone. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that makes a difference for sure, for sure. But you know, most of us never lived that life. You know, we hear about poverty, and a lot of us think, you know, I grew up in a pretty poor place. You know. I, and I grew up, my, my father was a police officer. My mother worked for the police department, a different police department in their evidence room, right? And the police around here don't pay a whole lot. I'm certain somewhere they get paid a lot of money, but we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I knew that we were probably towards the lower end of the socioeconomic strata in our area. But man, most of us don't know what living poor really is, living in true poverty, you know, how has that, how has that affected you as a man, as, as you've begun to grow and, and get married and, and looking into to the future? Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, there, that's a good question. There, that, that's a great question. <laughs> it's, I mean, she actually, you know, it's still like small habits that I try to, you know, use up any and everything in the house as far as food. And I'm not real picky with food at all. You know, if it's something that, you know, her mom cooks that I'm not, I don't like, I'm not going to say it, I don't like it. It's just you eat it and you enjoy it. You know, you enjoy the small things. And I, I had to be intentional in growing up about not thinking in a poverty mindset of when is my next meal going to come? When is my next opportunity going to come? Making quick money where uh, instead of building a business, I could be working at McDonald's making quick money and started seeing the long-term future goals. And I think that's the biggest thing about the poverty mindset. We're huge on quick, instant, fast food, so to speak, type of culture where you need it quick right now because you don't know where your next meal is gonna come from, your next dollar is gonna come from. You don't know 
you, it's just you're so uncertain about the future that you make rash decisions and and these are not logical decisions that you make. But one of the things that has uh, helped me as an adult and as a man is my faith in God. And you see scriptures in Matthew that talk about, um, you know, not worrying about where your next meal will come from, or where you wear, what clothes you wear on your back, but seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be taken care of. It's like, you know, we, we submit ourselves to God and we don't worry about anything else. And we just move forward and just have that faith. And that faith has really carried me into adulthood. And that scripture was specifically for me. And even though the, the analogy of food and, and clothing may be, uh, again, an analogy in the scripture, but literally in my situation, I, I dealt with so much of uh, worrying about food and clothing and all that. But uh, and I, in my adulthood, I noticed I talked to my mentor the other day. Uh, we talked about um trying to find a job i'm applying i'm applying for a bunch of jobs working on three businesses mm-hmm. i talked to him about getting into real estate and like nine different pathways and he talked to me like dude you need to stop you're doing too much and i can tell just by how you're talking that you you're showing how you you sit the situations you grew up in and you want to try a million different avenues to try to make money and try to be successful and try to be happy but you're going to wear yourself out and you're not you're not completing the will of God and what you need to do in life. And you're going to wear yourself out trying to overcompensate for the poverty you were in as a child. And you're trying a million different things. And I was, you know, I was trying to study real estate, try to get into that, try to learn investing and work on the businesses and then try to find a job at the same time. And then all these things all at once and I'm overcompensating, but I've learned to kind of take a step back and let uh and just just let these opportunities come to my doorstep because once I have that faith, these things will come to my doorstep and just worry about what I can control and just do my best in the areas that I'm working in, like the businesses and the book and everything else. Yeah, because I, I see that like before we got married, he, it was a lot of um anxiety. He started having anxiety attacks and things of like, I'm not ready to get married, I can't provide for you right now, we're not bringing in income, and like it was just so much anxiety around that. And I think that that's really common for a lot of men, um, but then specifically men that come from poverty and and wanting better and wanting to provide for their family and and not seeing that um, that realization right now. And, you know, just I think that's also the importance of having that strong partnership and then that relationship with God of um, of like your partner reminding you that what you're working on right now does have value. And um, and we're building for the long term, not for just right now. Like, yes, we can go out and get a job right now, but I don't think that that's our path that we're meant to be in this moment, that we're building legacies far beyond that. And that's with the book. That's with um, our uh, our three businesses that we have right now. And just the amount of progress that we've made in this last year is just phenomenal. Um, and, and opportunities will come, but just not continuing to not try to just think today. Um, and that's that was always my uh, my thing too, because I was an extreme planner. I, I plan my day down to the second. And if I left my planner at home in high school, I would, I would try to call home. Like I'm going home for the day. I don't know where my day's going. Um, planning gave me that stability. And so to go to college and to, to think long-term far beyond like, what am I doing in this moment? What am I doing next week? But what, what can I do next month, next year, five years from now? And having people question me on that, I didn't know how to respond to that because I wasn't used to, to doing that because I, I was so used to planning for today. And so I think that's, how we can complement each other as well as like 
is learning to plan beyond just today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Alexis, how about your childhood? You know, where, where you came from, because you had a pretty deep story as well. That was totally different than <laughs> Justin's, but it was still a deep and common story. Yeah. Um, and so I grew up with a lot of abuse and sexual abuse and, um, and that was pretty, I, it was, how do I say this? It was pretty common with the, with the girls in my neighborhood, in my apartment complex. When I was brought up to them of, of what was going on with me, several of them said, you know, that that's also happening with them. And so that kind of rationalized what was going on in my home, that that was normal. Um, but then when I started to talk to other other friends, maybe outside of my neighborhood, once I um, once I switched schools and I started talking to them about what was going on, and them telling me like you know that's not normal, like this isn't how my family dynamic is, this that's not healthy, um, and so that's when I really started to to realize that, and that was when I was like eleven or twelve, um, and so that's when I really started to to pay attention to that, um, and uh, I also went through a lot of depression and suicidal thoughts and things and um I in high school I was hospitalized um for being suicidal and I was put on medication I was put on suicide watch and, and all these things and I I had at least four suicide attempts um and I talk about that in the book and if I would have known my family history and that my mom committed suicide and that my grandma did also her mother uh, that this runs in our family and I need to be proactive on that. I need to be careful. Um, and what can I do about that? But not knowing that history of something so big like that, um, and how, you know, it could run in my genes. Like, and I, and I may not know that, uh, it's, it's really impossible for me to kind of be proactive on that. But then also just with so much compounded trauma. Um, and I had one individual, well, when I was in high school, I, um, there was a girl that I knew that she died by suicide and um, I had somebody tell me that if anybody were to do that in high school they thought it would have been me and that and how like that that hurt <laughs> it, um, and so that was also like a moment where I'm like dang I really gotta I gotta get this together <laughs> I gotta figure this out and um, seeing how that we talk about it a lot in the book of how it really impacted our relationship especially in the beginning um, of the way that we communicated with each other and we, and I, the way that we communicate with each other and the way that we handle conflict. And I tell Justin this all the time that um, I feel that one of the hugest issues in families and communities is the lack of communication skills and lack of conflict resolution skills. Because if you don't have either of those, then you're not understanding what a healthy relationship is in your home and an intimate relationship and a professional relationship that you think that fighting is always the way out, violence is always the way out, um, that there's not, there's no real resolution there. There's no real um, getting to the root of, of what's happening. And I always tell Justin that you can look at an entire neighborhood and probably every single home is going through the same exact traumas, but nobody knows that because nobody's talking about it. And everybody just tries to dress up their trauma in what they're wearing, what they buy, things like that. And, and, um, and so I saw that in my life and in the way that I was dressing and um, the way that I try to present myself to the world and just try to dress up my trauma in a way and cover it up um, and not dealing with it until we kind of started dating. <laughs> well, I, I got to ask, um, what age did, were you, were you when the, the abuse really started in, in full force, you know? Uh, it was, I was about six. So actually the abuse started before my mother died and I actually, um, you know, as an adult, you can look back and memories can be distorted, but 
how I remember it is that the abuse started before my mother died. And I think that's why she was fighting so hard for her, for my dad not to get custody. Um, it's because she saw how evil he was. <clears throat> and I, in my mind, I told her what was happening. Don't know how true that is. Um, but I think that's when it began was, was right before that. Um, but then right around six was when it was when it really started. Um, and I, and my dad would, um, say things like you look like your mother and, uh, but then when he was mad, he would say like, you're a bee just like your mother. You know, it, it was, uh, I think he took out a lot of that anger from her, um, on me. And then he used a lot of that as sympathy, like to other people, like he would say like, you know, when he was late on a bill or when he was in court or whatever, he would say like, um, oh, you know, my, my girlfriend died by suicide, like, you know, for pity points. And so uh, I think I think a lot of that started because of um, because of like taking on a lot of that anger and frustration out on me um, and nobody was there to supervise or, or check on me kind of thing. <laughs> Well, I imagine a lot of that had a, a lot to do with the depression and suicidal thoughts. I mean, I'm no psychologist here. I mean, I claim to be a completely untrained and unprofessional part-time hobbyist psychologist. So, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we all are in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> in in this world, you almost have to be, you know. But I, I see a lot of a lot of kids who've been through the things you've been through, who deal with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, that sort of thing. Where did you find help for that at that young of an age? Or did you find any help? I didn't find any help until I was, um, well, let me say this. So when I was in middle school, um, the first time that CPS ever came to our house was when I, uh, was when I told a counselor in school because, um, it, he, he beat me really bad one night and I went to school the next day and like I had bruises and stuff. And, um, and I went to the school counselor and I told her what happened. She called CPS, CPS came. And the beating was way worse the next day. <laughs> so, um, and then I just called the counselor and the the count and the CPS person, and I was like, "Yeah, I made that all up. Sorry. Like, you know, try to back out of it." Um, and it was way worse that night. So then I just regretted ever saying anything. Um, and so it wasn't until I was 13 when my best friend's mother. Um, well, my best friend told her mother what was going on and she called me over and I was over her house every day, all day. I mean, this was my person. Like I would just walk in the house without knocking like in the fridge all the time. Like I was basically their daughter and um, she called me over and my best friend wasn't there. And I'm like, OK, this is weird now. <laughs> like, Where is she at? And then she she said, you know, Alexis, let's sit down and talk about this. And um, and so she sat me down and said, you know, what's going on at home? And, uh, and I was like, nothing's good. <laughs> and, and then she's like, you know, my daughter told me everything. And so then, you know, I'm kind of in a corner of, do I say something? Do I not? What's going to happen next? And then I, you know, remember the last time that I said something and she told me, you know, if you don't say something, you have one week, if you don't say something, I will. And so she gave me, in my mind, she gave me the power to be able to say something myself versus it being taken away from me. Um, uh, but within that week, uh, I was, I was still forced to say something because I went to a concert and I think I, I got home late and uh, he was really mad at me. Um, and like, I got a really bad beating that night with like, like he's throwing golf balls at me and punching me and slamming me into a wall and things and dislocated my shoulder. And the next day I went to church and my arm was blue and uh, my friends, uh, my friends saw that. 
And then um, she told her mom, who's a police officer. And so that's when balls start rolling. You can't really go back from that. You can't take that back. Uh, you know, the, the evidence is there. <laughs> um, and uh, and then also text messages in her daughter's phone were there and, you know, all this, all this type of stuff. So I can really back out that time. And uh, I was taken to the hospital. They did a rape kit um, and uh, a whole workup assessment. Um, and then I went and lived with my aunt, um, my aunt and uncle. And it was then that the judge ordered counseling. Um, and I don't remember like when I first went to counseling, like if I actually tried to talk or say anything or whatever, I just remember a lot of quiet time, like going there and kind of just sitting there. And I'm sure that a lot of it was purposeful because at home, my aunt, like the first, when I first moved in with her, at least the first month, she really tried to be a mother to me and um, be that mother that I never had. And so I trusted her, I opened up to her. But then about a month after that, she completely flipped the script and the things that I opened up to her about, she started throwing in my face. And then when I would get in trouble, she would run out in the basement and grab my suitcases and threaten to run to kick me out um, and start grabbing my clothes and throwing them in. And so it was, it was that also that trauma. And so when I would go to counseling, I would just sit there and say like, I just need quiet <laughs> like right now. And like, and then I, I would beg to go to counseling because I'm like, I just, I want to get out of the house. Like give me an hour uh, away, you know? And so it kind of turned into that, but I don't think I actually started to heal from things until I was probably, I think it was in high school and I started going to group therapy. And I think that that was one of the greatest things that I did um, because then it was a way for me to connect with other young women who have gone through similar things and to hear their side of it and to know that I'm not alone in my experiences and that there are other women out there and how are they healing from it? What are they doing? And that was one of my favorite things I did because um, individual therapy is cool, but like, I don't know, group therapy was always my favorite. And then, um, and then when I graduated high school and I moved out of my aunt, or um, sorry, after I moved out of my aunt's house, I stopped going to counseling and I stopped taking medication on my own because I'm like, I'm healed, I'm good, I'm out of the house, I'm taken care of. And that was that was not true. Um, a lot of times we don't realize the damage done until you leave the situation. And I noticed that from when I left my aunt's house and then when I also left my abusive relationship. And um, then I'm like, oh wow, like the amount of like trauma that's kind of compounded, but then also I had PTSD twice um, diagnosed. I'm sure it was probably more than that, but diagnosed twice. Um, and and then uh, I went back on my own and sought out counseling. And that was definitely one of the greatest decisions I've done uh, for my own individual healing. And we talk about that a lot in the book that we are here right now so much of because of our community, but then also because we are so purposeful on our individual healing um, and self-discovery before we could come together because we would not be successful if we came together and just kind of put each other's trauma on each other and said, you know, you're the, you're my person. Like, I'm going to tell you everything and I'm going to just expect you to heal me. That's not, that's not real life. That's, that doesn't happen. I have to do that on my own. Nobody's going to heal me, but me. You know, <laughs> Like I mentioned, my wife went through a lot of stuff as, as a, as a young kid. And I thought for a long time that, and I even said this, that part of my job as a husband was to, to heal some of the sins of the father, so to speak. Mm. And eventually I learned that that wasn't actually true. My mm. job was to create a space where healing can occur. Exactly. And I think that that's exactly what he did. Um, cause I told him when we first started dating, cause when we first started, when we first met, I was seven days removed from an abusive relationship for eight years. And I told him like, I need time. 
I don't even know who I am. I don't know who I am, my morals, my values, anything. My identity as a as a whole was wrapped around this other individual for eight years. I mean, from 13 to 22, like that's your formative years of who am I, you know? And um, and I told him like, I don't want to date you. <laughs> like we can be friends. And he said, you know, I'll be your friend. I'll be there. Um, and then we ended up being best friends. And then once we actually started dating and things started coming out and just him being that person, I could just, I could just be safe with. And he's like my, he's my home. He's my safe place. And, um, and just being that person that he provides that safe place for me. And hundred percent, I know like without effect, this book would not be written without him. Um, just because we, we wrote this together. We were so vulnerable together and we were, we wanted to do that before we got married because we're like, okay, most marriages or at least over half the marriages fail. Um, and, and then add on the fact that we're in interracial couple, then add on all the trauma and all the other things. It's like, it statistically we're bound to fail. And it's like, how can we work past that? And how can we make our relationship stronger? And that's where really this work, this book was birthed from. Um, and, and from that aspect and just him being my person and feel safe that I could write this book with. Well, I want to give you a little bit of good news. You know, my wife and I have been through our fair share of struggles and traumas and we've been through a lot and she uses a lot of that same verbiage that you have just used about, about the way that our relationship was built. Mm -hmm. And well, our oldest is over 20. So Mm -hmm. we've managed to make it a long ways past all the reasons why we should be divorced. According Mm -hmm. to culture, according to the statistics, we, we shouldn't have made it this far. Exactly. And if you're intentional about that, you can change that, that narrative in your story and change that generational problem that you guys have, have had for so long. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to bring up one point you mentioned about going to, you know, a friend's house and having always being there, being the kid who just shows up. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have that. I mean, I know I have a couple of kids who do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one kid who shows up at my house in the middle of the night sometimes and he'll wow. come over and hang up and, or hang out. And, and he's just, you know, poor <laughs> Floyd. Floyd has seen me more times in the middle of the night with like an angry face because I'm like, I hear a noise in my house. Floyd showed up a lot all the time. We've had a lot of kids who, who showed up in our world that way. And a lot of parents do. And I wonder just how many of those kids are the kids like you mm-hmm. who had a story that they were hiding, that they were running from mm-hmm. looking for a safe place. And, mm-hmm. you know, parents are providing that for another kid, not knowing it. Yeah. It's definitely something that, that just struck me that that's something to always be watching for, because I mean, this story is not, it's not a one of a kind story. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's too common in our world. Yeah. And Kids, you have to think about it. Kids don't necessarily know how to translate their emotions to words. And and almost always it comes out in actions. And so that's why it's so important to to just observe children and see what are they doing? Are they acting out? Are they speaking out? Are they yelling and, and running away? What like, what does this mean? And how do you translate that? I believe that it's a parent's job to translate their kids' actions to words. And, and what does this mean for them and help them to translate that? um, to, to be able to communicate that to the rest of the world. Um, and watching my mom, who's my adopted mom, watching her with my siblings of, you know, you know, they act up, they, this house is this, like the healthiest, safest house on the planet. I tell you, (laughs) they're just the greatest, greatest parents ever. And, but they're, you know, kids, 
uh, yell and scream and other things, but it's, they're just translating their emotions of like, I'm upset right now. And okay. But why are you yelling at me? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And, and just watching her extreme patience. I've never witnessed such patience in my life. Like just watching that and how she communicates with them. And, and especially Obi, who's the four-year-old of running around screaming, crying and, that's just his way of saying like, I want to be held right now. Like, I just, I just want you to give me attention to love me right now. And the second that she, you know, holds him, it stops. And just seeing that is so beautiful to me of like how much the parents, how much is the job, the job and the duty of the parents to really translate that emotion and to make them feel safe in those emotions. And whenever my siblings cry, she doesn't tell them to stop crying. I've never heard her say that. I've never heard her say, stop crying. I've never heard her say, go to your room and cry or anything. Cause she doesn't want to isolate them. She doesn't want them to feel that their emotions don't matter or that crying isn't good. Even for, especially for the boys, I have several um, brothers and for them, she's never said, you know, stop crying, man up or, or anything like that. Things that I've grown up hearing and I'm sure Dustin has heard. Um, and, and just the importance of, of parents um, saying like more positive things about uh, trusting their emotions and listening to them. You know, I have a friend of mine, Jeremy Roadruck. He was actually on the podcast quite a while back, but I've known Jeremy for a while and he talks a lot about things like uh, things about the, uh, the BS in our lives. And and the real BS is called belief systems, right? That's what I love that. for. <laughs> and you know, you, you grew a bunch of belief systems through your early childhood, through your, through your early adolescence, Justin, I'm sure you grew a lot of those those belief systems as well. And now that you you've come out of that situation, you're in a healthier situation. You're having somebody actually model loving, um, kindness, caring, that sort of stuff for you. Mm-hmm. How has your belief systems been affected? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think, um, my, some of the biggest things, my belief system is just, uh, first it's a curiosity just a state of curiosity to try and uh, evolve new things and always wanting to grow and do more. Um, I think being in foster care and moving home to home, uh, adjusting to that uh, was huge. And some of the things in my belief system came from people believing in me when I didn't believe in myself. Like, um, I don't know if you're in this part of the book yet, but just being in a group home at like 17 or 18, and having mentors of mine speak life into me and speak so many good things into me that I didn't believe myself at the time, like going to college, like doing great things. And I had like a two point, maybe one or 2.2 at that time. And they believed in me to get my, my grade point average up and to go to college and, and to just explore and try so many things and telling me, oh, you're a great writer. You're a wonderful writer. I see you doing this. I see you doing that. And it takes... It, it takes a lot. It takes a, a person or a community of people around you to change your belief system, because honestly, whatever your community is, whatever the pe- your family says or the culture of your family, that is your belief system. You you naturally uh, accept or receive that belief system of uh, the people that are around you and um, what they accept or what they believe. So you believe what they believe. So with, with the changing of people around me and going home to home and being around uh, uh, the right uh, group of people in the right community really changed things for me and changed my belief system. And with that curiosity of just wanting to do more that they instilled in me of 
okay, you can do these things. You can do great things. You can go to college. And for me to live in Detroit for like 17 or 18 years and then move to Kalamazoo, Michigan at Western Michigan University, go to college and be the first person in my family. It's like knocking down that first door of being the first in my family to go to college and to graduate college. Being the first kind of was almost like an addiction within itself, you know, just trying to do more, do more and and uh, uh, test my limits and more feel like that didn't have any more limits, being that I was the first in my family to do something and understanding the work that was put in to get to that point, understanding the process, uh, I think is a, a, is a great component in your belief system as well as understanding the process of growth, understanding the process of you know, failure is actually you just learning from something and learning how to do better. And there will be trials and tribulations and understanding that where there is success, there was trials and tribulations. So there would never be success easily. There would never be something you achieve easily. So understanding that component of uh, how to achieve and how to believe in myself really helped me understand the process of taking things to another level in, in my professional life and in my personal life. And when it comes to traveling abroad and being that we've been able to travel to 30 countries combined and um, 13 study abroad programs and creating a study abroad program, taking things to another level and knowing that there will be obstacles and things uh, along the way that, that will test us and that will be a, a, a barrier knowing that we can overcome that and the process on how to do it really starts to alter your belief system and how you believe in what you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think for me, the biggest thing was unlearning the fact that love hurts um, because it started with my parents um, just teaching me that love is transactional, love hurts. You have to give a piece of yourself in order to receive love um, or you're inferior to somebody else, especially a male figure. Um, and so translating that and into um, my value and um, and into that uh, long-term abusive relationship of um, my worth is less than this other individual and also that everything he says to me was true it was fact um, because that's really what I knew um, and and internalizing all of those things that somebody so somebody could say that's so evil um, and and I talk about some of those things that were said to me in the book and and just um, and, but then also what really rationalized so much of it was that um, there was a couple times where these things that was said by this individual or done by this individual was was done in front of family and nobody stood up for me. Nobody did anything. And so I'm like, you know what? Maybe this is normal. And and I asked my foster now adoptive dad, I asked him one Christmas holiday and I said, you know, do you ever call your wife the B word? Um, and he looked at me shocked and was like, no, I love her. Why would I ever do that? And I'm like, well, that's basically my second name. <laughs> like I'm called that at least once a day. And you know, it's it's like little things like that. I'm like, is this normal? And and just constantly questioning like what what was done to me, what was said to me, what is around me, is this normal? Like, and we all have our different perspective on what that is, and there's not one definition of what normal is or what um what should be done or what shouldn't be done, but there's definitely right and wrong in things. And uh, and that's what I that's what I've been really struggling with and working through. Um, and, you know, it's a lifelong journey of still continuing to unlearn and relearn and, um, and and work through that. Healing is a lifelong journey, but 
I wanted to do the grand majority of it now so that I'm not so I'm not struggling with it. Um, but then also I have my partner who's willing to to stand by my side through it. Um, and then I have my faith in God that that really that really has been supporting me. Um, but that was definitely one of my biggest things is um, who who am I? What is my identity and what is that rooted in? Um, and knowing that it's not in another individual, not even my husband. So um, I think that was that was definitely one of the biggest things for me because then once I learned that, man, I just kind of took off. Like I started doing really well in school. I started getting awards and scholarships and getting more involved and just growing myself um, personally and professionally and then in my faith. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so it's it, it was just figuring out that at first <laughs> and then it's roller coaster after that. <laughs> you know, if, if you've been a listener to the podcast at all, you've heard me talk about the uh, the dad's group I'm in. The dad, Ed, the dad Edge Alliance is actually the uh, it's elite group, but um, Larry Hagner runs it, and he's got a uh, he's got a podcast called the Dad's Edge. I believe is the name of it now. If anybody's interested, if you're a dad, you should listen. Go check out the GoodDadProject.com. There's a little free plug for Larry because you know he's he's got an amazing group over there. And one of the things I one of the first things I learned from his group was it was it's a saying. I believe the quote comes from Jim Rohn. If you're familiar with Jim Rohn, he's an older guy, but he was a, a big public speaker, a motivational speaker. But one of the things he said that that's really resonated with me is you are the average of the five people you spend the most time. Uh-huh. We, so we say that all the time. And that's in the book too. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Justin, you said something a couple of times that, that merely made me think about that, talking about having mentors. And where, where did you learn that, that that was something you even needed to do in your life? Because most young men don't have that. And, and how did you find mentors that were worth having? Well, again, this is just God laying his hands all over my life because uh, I was at a point where I was living with my brother's best friend parents. And I lived there for about eight months, um, a situation where it just, you know, I, I needed to leave because they didn't want me there anymore. I wasn't doing good as far as getting in trouble in school here and there. Um, just grades weren't good. Um, not doing as me because as consistent with chores as I needed to be. And just in general, raising someone else's kids is not your own is difficult. So I was transitioning from that house and uh, I was actually preparing to go to a, a juvenile detention center because there was really nowhere else for me to go. And, and or at least not that not exactly a detention center, but like something like that foster youth who have foster teenagers who have nowhere else to go. So I was in this position and then my foster care worker told me that there was an opening in the house right outside of Detroit where uh, it was a house for four boys and there were three uh, boys in the house right now and they had a spot available and um, they had an opening and there was an opportunity for me to go there. And the structure of the house is the group home, again, with four boys transitioning into adulthood out of the foster care system. And there's two house parents, but uh, there's a church just pouring into the the house, donating money to the house. And most importantly, the church and different people within different fields are just contributing to the young men who are preparing to get into adulthood. So it's not something that I was intentional about seeking or something that I just knew to do, like I needed a mentor. You know, at that age, I didn't know everything that I needed, but I knew I, I wanted to be better and stop getting kicked out of houses, that's, that's for sure. But um, I the house was set up, the structure of the house is beautiful where, you know, you have mentors and 
there were so many African-American men that I never seen so many African-American men in my life. So there were uh, pastors and businessmen and um, just engineers and, and, and black men who were doing great things. And just, again, just speaking life into me and so many good things into me. And the structure of the house, again, it was just set up beautifully where we were able to, to interact with mentors and um, people who, uh, if we, if even if I was taking a Spanish class and I was struggling in Spanish, you know, they would find a Spanish tutor somewhere and, you know, just help me out. Or if I was struggling in the math class, they would have someone to help me out. And just anything we needed, the people who created the house, the four couples who created the house were very intentional about mentoring us, making sure we were good and just uh, making sure we weren't lacking anything that any other kid was lacking. But even if, you, if you're not a foster care, I feel like you do need a community and you do need mentors around you. And it was just great for me to have that as a foster care youth who didn't exactly have uh, traditional parents uh, I was living with at that time. And mentors, I would say, really saved me. And, uh, you know, I every year at the end of the year, we send an update document of, you know, what we have going on and just how they've impacted our lives and just how they contributed to us and, and made things just, just better for us in general, professionally and personally. And again, like I said, mentors have saved my life and believed in me so much that it is it's only right that I go back and, and uh, pay it forward and mentor other teenage foster youth, other black men, you know, other uh, men and women who are struggling with their in the system, uh, in poverty, or just need something small, something to help with in general. So I, I do what I can to pay it forward. But yeah, it's nothing of my own doing of having mentors that have poured into me. You know, I was on a uh, group call here a while back in the dad's group that I'm in and uh, Meg Meeker, if you guys aren't familiar with Meg Meeker, she's the author of Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, I believe is the name of the book. And if you have a daughter, you should read that book. She's a, just an amazing person. And at that point in in time when it was going on, we had a bunch of the, the racial tensions that were in the news going on. And somebody asked a question of her about that and the way that she saw it, the way to solve almost all of those problems immediately. And I, I agree with her. She said, if we would put one strong black man on every corner of every neighborhood, you would solve most of those problems because I've been in those hoods, right? I've been in some of those places, you know, like I said, I, I work in St. Louis a lot and I've been in a lot of those rough neighborhoods and man, all the guys I meet, one guy told me that one day he had 17 children with three on the way. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't ask how that math worked out, yeah. uh, oh but you know, he, he's, he, on the uh, way. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I don't think it was, it was a single, a single mother of three. I think it was three separate mothers that, that he had three on the way at the same time. And, and most of the young men I see out there, man, they're, they're all dressed in color coded clothing and they're selling something, whether it's, you know, drugs or they're selling you know, bodies on, on the street out there, man, it's, it happens all the time. And that's who I see in those neighborhoods. And there's so few strong men out there who will step into that difficult world and be that mentor. And I hear a lot of people who say, I can never do foster care. I can never foster care. I, I couldn't let them go. It would hurt. It would this. And, and I understand all that, but man, one of those things that I think that you hit on right there, that's what you can do. You had, you had businessmen and pastors who were stepping into that into the, the world of some young men in a hard place who sounds like they completely changed your world. 
Yeah, they did. I mean, first and foremost, the grace and mercy of God really impacted me the most. But um, I think that there are people put in our lives to help us and save us. And um, I think just the men around me and women also, um, of Black men and women, uh, other men and women who just contribute to continue to help and support. And it's just not even just the words they said, but the things they did, they, they did just to believe in me and the small things of um, never giving up on me and always seeing the best in me when things get rough. And um, there's a scripture and uh, uh, that talks about the definition of love. And, it, and a lot of times in the world, we, we have this idea of love is a strong passion and emotion whether that's romantically or in any relationship. And I, I've noticed that a lot of times that when I engage in relationships with foster parents or um, someone that I live with or a house parent or whatever, there, there's been somewhat of the world's definition of love of a strong passion and emotion. And when you bring in a new kid in, there's strong passion and emotion. You feel, you feel deeply about that person. But the true definition of love is not just a strong passion or emotion because that will burn out. You know, emotions change. One day you're happy, one day you're sad, you're angry. But when you have those bad days, who is going to be patient and kind and see the best in you and not keep record of wrong? Who's going to display those actions and ideas? And I think that the mentors and the people who were in my life at that right moment when I was preparing to go to college, I had some of, some of the people in my life um, really displays some of those actions and ideas of always seeing the best of me and always contributing to my life. And not just an emotion of things are going good right now, so we're going to be happy. But when things go bad and, you know, I may not have done some of the right things or I may have made a mistake, are you still going to love me and contribute to my life and be there for me when I need it the most? Because, you know, it's easy to love someone on a good day when it's happy, when it's sunny and everything. But um, when there's a bad day where you make a mistake, when your child makes a mistake, when things go wrong, can you help them? Can you be there for them? And I think all my mentors that I have right now who are still in my life, they've always contributed to me and they're always by my side when things get rough and always there to help me correct those mistakes and see the best in me when I make those mistakes. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like the two of you have really found some good people to put in your life that are putting you both on a path becoming those mentors for others mm-hmm. exactly and as young as you are and yeah i can say that because you know i'm not <laughs> as young as you guys are that's a trajectory that's going to completely shape not only your lives but the worlds of the people around you because it's that it's that image of of the the airline um yeah the aircraft carrier out in the ocean right when he wants to turn around it doesn't get done right now, right? He makes a one degree shift and a one degree shift and a one degree shift and and four or five of those little bitty one degree shifts is the difference between hitting Africa or Australia. When you guys have that long-term future out ahead of you, where if you stay on that path, my goodness, y'all are going to make some big differences in this world. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we already mentor and give back as much as possible. And like one of the greatest things for me, and I wrote it in the book uh, is, um, when my mentees text me, you know, their successes, because they, like, you don't have to fail in order for me to succeed. We can all succeed. And so it, it's building up other people. And, and it was just one of the greatest days when my mentee texted me and said, you know, that he won the presidential scholar award from Western. Um, and that's the highest award that you can get from a university. And just 
just seeing that and seeing like pouring into somebody and helping them believe and telling me them telling me, you know, you believed in me. That's why I made it here. You showed me, you paved the way I did it because of you type of thing. And it's just like, that's why we do it. I mean, <laughs> so much of why we do it is just, um, is, is showing people that what we're, what we've done is possible for other people. And that's why we wrote this book. And as nerve wracking it is as it is to publish your diary, um, knowing that it's it's a much greater purpose and a much greater impact than than us. It, it's so much bigger than us. Yeah. I just want to point out the fact that you just you use the word, but you know, you're 26 years old and you have mentees. Mm-hmm. You're reaching oh, yeah, we're never too young to have mentees. Yeah. yeah I mean it's all just <laughs> It's really just all passing out information. You know, yeah. our mentors give us information and strategies and things of what we can do. We pass that down to people younger than us or maybe even people older than us, you know, yeah. people who, who are older than us ask us questions about how to do this, how to do that, how to figure this out. We just pass them along information. And once we go through those trials and tribulations of how to figure out something as small as how to work a certain application mm-hmm. of, you know, for our businesses we pass that information along mm-hmm. you know and it's just everybody just passing out information that's basically what a mentor is something that someone who's done something that you want to do either professionally or personally or whatever area in life and they pass down that information and, and kind of set the pathway before you show you how how to, to do it and what to, to like the do's and the don'ts mm-hmm. and you know how to overcome those trials and tribulations so mm-hmm. whenever we receive information from anybody we just pass it along so that's it, it, it we a lot of times people view us as mentors and, it, and it's like real glorified but really we just pass along what we've learned to other people yeah and i mean just in the same way that i have mentors um in a person in a personal sense but then also in a professional sense i have many different mentors i probably 15 and uh but they all have their sort of different capacity in my life of, of what they're going to help me with and, and i tell my mentee the same thing is i shouldn't be your only mentor you know, you need other mentors, whether I'm helping you personally, you need professional mentors or get more mentors that are going to help you personally and help you stay accountable and on what you're doing, your goals and your dreams and the path that you're wanting to take. It can't just be placed on me. Um, you need that network and you need your community and you need to build that. And that's really what we're doing. Um, and it's just always being that open resource for people. And, and I think because I love information, that's just a natural pathway for me uh, is that I hoard information. I just want to share with the world. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's played into why I want to be a mentor as well, but we all have the capacity to be mentors, um, whether it's what you've gone through, um, whether it's information that you hold that you want to share with others and whatever, whatever way, shape or form it is, you have the ability to be that mentor for somebody else. Well, I just want to call you both out a little bit. That information is really important, but the other thing that you're doing is you're, you're handing out some love. And that's something that this world is a little bit short on right now. Oh yeah. It's been short. (laughs) It's a little shorter now. (laughs) It's been short for a lot of, for, for more than a few millennia. And you guys are are handing out some care to people who really need it. And I just, I want to say that out loud because that's, that's the biggest part. I can tell you anything, but -hmm. if you don't think I care about you, you ain't going to listen. Absolutely. Mm. I agree. And I mean, and also I think, for men, like if you do have a mentor and you are a mentee, it's taking that information and processing it and receiving it and actually implementing it in your life. Like for an example, my pastor, she has many mentors as you can, or mentees, as you can imagine, but she says she pours into them all of her love, all of her information, but most of them do nothing with it. 
And as a mentor, that's really disheartening. And, and it kind of hurts because it's like, I love you. I'm pouring into you. I want you to do better, but you have to receive that. And I think that's also, uh, it's also something that we have to learn is being able to receive. And if you can't receive, you can't receive information. You can't receive love. You can't receive vulnerability. You can't receive success. I mean, it, it's piled on. It's many different layers. And it's being able to receive. And for so many years, I couldn't receive that um, just because I was closed off and I had those walls up. And um, now my pastor and I, like, she, she, I don't know why we always end up on the phone at 11 or midnight. <laughs> I don't know. But we're on the phone for two or three hours. And we pour into each other because every relationship, no matter personal, professional, it's mutually beneficial. That's a relationship. And you have to pour into each other. Um, and so, and and now, and for, I mean, it's probably been years. My pastor, I, every time I call around the phone for two, three hours, I'm learning from her. Now we're at the point where last night or two nights ago, when we were on the phone for two, three hours, she's like, Alexis, we're going to schedule another call. And I want to rack your brain. I want you to teach me now. And it's like, how beautiful is that? Like, that is awesome. And, I, and that's how it should be is that, you know, you pour into each other. You know, I just, I love the fact that you guys, you've got, and just like the title of your book says, you have two foster kids, you know, who, who came out of hard places, both of you from, you know, everything from physical, emotional, sexual abuse and poverty and, and not having the things that most people consider normal needs mm-hmm. to this place where I see the two of you sitting here smiling together and, and building beauty out of the ashes. Mm-hmm. And I love that you guys are going to be, are going to be an example to somebody. You guys are going to inspire some people out here today who really need to hear a story that says, Hey, I've been there. Mm-hmm. I've That's been cool. in, in, yeah. I've been <laughs> in that abandoned house. I've lived in that place. I've been in true poverty. I've been beat half to death by my parents. I mean, we've already gotten some really beautiful testimonies from reading our book. Um, and we've only shared it with our launch team, right? And and that's a very small number of people that's going to read this book. And just the amount of perceptions and, and lives that are being changed within this small yeah. group of people. And and women women that are married with kids have texted me and said, you know what, Alexis? I've been through similar experiences and I've never even told my husband. And you've given me the courage to deal with that. And it's like, you know, that's, this is another huge reason why we did this. And we were super intentional on that subtitle where it says how to foster kid, like the how to part, because it plays on the term of how to, you know, so we weren't just writing this for us. We're writing this for you too, of how can you do this as well? Mm -hmm. And that's why half about halfway through the book, we switch from writing in our narratives to more or less being a teacher and showing you, you can do this also. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, again, we're still sharing our narrative, but in a, it's more instructional versus this is just about us. Cause it's not just about us. Mm-hmm. Well, the two of you are going to make some waves in this world and I'm glad to see it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. We appreciate you so much for having us on and being able to talk about this. This mm-hmm. is awesome. I love yeah. this. <laughs> All right there, Foster Care Nation. If you learned anything there, if you're interested, if you were intrigued, go over and check out Justin and Alexis' book, Redefining Normal. You'll be able to find it on Amazon and everywhere that books are sold. If it's easier, just go to the show notes and click the link there because I'll have a link in there for it. If your podcast player does weird things with show notes like some of them do, you can check us out at fostercarenation.com. Click on the tab that says podcast notes and just scroll down to their episode and it will be listed in the show notes there for sure. 
I do have a quick ask of you though. If you would, I need a little bit of information. What is it about the show that you like? What it is it what is it about being a foster parent, adoptive parent, former foster youth, or an adoptee, or anything else in the system that causes you pain points? What would you like to hear about? Are there any specific guests or topics that you'd like us to bring up? Shoot me a message. You can find that link in the show notes as well. And if you'd rather not post it on a public forum, go ahead and shoot us an email at fostercareuj at gmail.com. That's fostercareu as an unparalleled j as in journey at gmail.com. Or if you'd rather check us out on our socials, you can hit us up at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Or you'll find the link for that in the show notes. All right, guys. We can't wait till we come back next week with another great episode and another great guest. We will see you there. Be sure to reach down and hit the button to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform it is that you listen to. And you get notified every time a new episode comes up. They come out every week on Tuesdays. And when you're hearing this, I will go ahead and say, make sure you have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Because it's that time of year. <laughs>